Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for joining me. As you enjoy this episode of Bleeding Daylight, please remember that there are many more episodes at bleedingdaylight.net. Please connect with Bleeding Daylight on social media. We've heard that humans are mind, body and soul, but how do we define the soul? And why is it so often neglected? Today's guest will take us closer to understanding the answer to those questions. Today's guest is an author, pastor, presenter and pursuer of truth. Corey Rosenke's latest book is The Magnetic Heart of God, Understanding the Five Cravings of Your Soul. It helps us understand why we do what we do, desire the things we desire, say what we say, and behave the way we behave. It's my honor to have Corey join us today. Thank you so much for your time. Rodney, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. You did have a very interesting upbringing. Some would consider it to be absolutely ideal or exciting, and yet it had its own issues, didn't it? Tell me a bit about that upbringing. I grew up, for a lot of people, as if it were the 1800s. <laughs> I grew up poor. For a while, our family was homeless. I know what it's like to pick berries for something to eat. <laughs> that was my early life, wandering the mountainside with my dog <laughs> and just exploring life and looking at the sky and asking why. From a very young age, I wanted to understand why people did what they did, why I did what I did. I think to a certain degree, I was blessed in that my life of poverty didn't give me the opportunity to pursue other things. So that's what I pursued. It's brought me to where I am today. It's interesting that as we talk about poverty, we find ourselves thinking of that always being a disadvantage. And yet, I'm sure that for someone like you, as you start to explore that, you say, well, look, there can be disadvantage in that, but there can be a lot of disadvantage in wealth as well. Yeah. Have you ever sort of considered the balance between those? And as you say, you didn't go down pathways that others might, and that that might have been the thing that almost saved you. Absolutely. I come from a family that I would say has a genetic disposition to different forms of addiction. I think that to a certain degree, poverty protected me to a certain degree from those things. But yeah, definitely in my life, I would definitely seek the balance. Poverty is not something I recommend, <laughs> but at the same time, I can see there's all sorts of things that shape and mold us. For me, I mean, I could have just as easily gone the other way. I could have just as easily spiraled into, into crime or despair or some such thing. I'm fortunate in that that's not the route that I took, and I don't think that I can take credit for that. I can just say that I'm thankful that it didn't go that direction for me. I've been to a number of countries where people are living in poverty and yet their surroundings seem almost idyllic. They're in beautiful countryside. And this was the same for you. You were in poverty, but you had this beauty of nature all around you. Describe that balance for me. Well, I, and I think that definitely factors into it. And so in the midst of you know, what we might call fiscal or economic poverty, I was surrounded by majesty and beauty that couldn't help but lift the heart and make the mind wonder about the awesomeness of the world and creation. And that was my life. I would take my dog and we would just wander the mountainsides looking at the beauty. And in my case, I was a reader, so I always had a book with me. And we'd disappear for the day, sometimes for days, and just wander that beauty. 
that's something for me that is still at heart. I'll always be a mountain boy, even though I, I now live in Silicon Valley, California. What they call mountains here, I don't call mountains because <laughs> where I come from, they're truly majestic and snow-capped and beautiful. And, and that, that'll always be in my heart and part of me. And that part of the world, the beautiful mountains of Canada, it does seem idyllic. And yet when we come back to that idea of poverty, we know that poverty isn't just a, a lack of stuff, that poverty actually speaks to you about who you are and it says you're not worth anything because you don't have anything. How did you escape that voice of poverty trying to tell you your worth? To start with, I delved into philosophy. I would say that was kind of my escape at the time. I was a reader. Even as a very young boy, I was I was into Aristotle and Plato and Confucius. I didn't find that I was looking for there, but it de definitely lifted my my mind from where I was. I often say philosophy led me to psychology, the study of the human mind. I remember for years I was really into Freud and this whole idea about the development of personality and how uh, our childhoods affect us and the id and the ego and the superego and his theories all revolving around that. Again, that didn't answer my questions, but it did lift my eyes from where I was. And then, of course, there's neuroscience. You know, for a while I was into that. To be honest, I'm still into that. I still find it to be a fascinating thing, the whole idea of the neuroplasticity of the brain and how through, through either trauma or self-discipline, the brain can actually change shape and release different chemicals. It's a fascinating study. Ultimately, I ended up in faith, and that is where I believe I found the answers I was looking for and the peace I was looking for. And so that's a bit of the journey that I had from that point of really, you know, I could have spiraled down into despair in that place, but that was the progression that finally led me out of the dark, I would say, and into the light and, and gave me a hope and a future. As you're reading all these very heavy volumes, what was it that actually turned your mind to faith? I believe it was another heavy volume of a very different kind. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was, I'd say a large part of that was C.S. Lewis, specifically mere Christianity. I remember our family were churchgoers and going to church one day and someone in the church finding out that I was a reader and that I loved reading heavy books. He said, you should read C.S. Lewis. And he Looking back, I think he probably meant the Chronicles of Narnia because I was pretty pretty young at the time when I was first introduced to this. But for me, it was Mere Christianity, <laughs> a book by C.S. Lewis that really kind of, for me, bridged that gap between thinking and faith. From looking at the world philosophically and even psychologically and bridging that gap and saying, hey, faith and psychology or faith and philosophy are not two separate roads. They are, in fact, parallel paths oftentimes. And so he kind of is the one that bridged that gap for me. C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer, I would say specifically, uh, were people that bridged that gap for me. Many people try and say that science or understanding must be very separate from religion, that religion is this blind faith kind of thing, then there's the real study, and yet you're saying there's a bridge between, there's an understanding between, that they can go hand in hand. Help me understand that a little bit better. And I would say that they've they've always gone hand in hand. Well, I think it would come back to confirmation bias to a certain degree. The people in history who have somehow touted science as to being you know, the opposite or the an, an anti-faith, an antidote to faith even, are people who entered it with their own agenda. There are plenty of scientists, great thinkers throughout history, 
who kept their faith and can see how science completely aligns with it. In fact, I would go further than that. I would say that science by definition is the observance and the documentation of life and existence. And so it is limited to what can be observed and documented. And anything beyond that is theory. Of course, we live in a world that strangely and often goes beyond the ability to observe, which goes beyond the scope of science. And yet sometimes we're still told that it's science when truly it isn't. It's theory at that point. Uh, Not only would I say is, is faith and science compatible, but I would say that faith is actually the foundation of good science. And as we look at the volumes that you had been reading to that point, of course, Coming to faith would have shined a very different light on that. As you say, not completely discounting some of those earlier books that you had read, but letting you see them through a very different lens. Well, I specifically remember for me a moment I was reading the Iliad by Homer for what must have been the fourth or fifth time for whatever reason that that book had really connected with me at an especially young age. In that book... It has Achilles and Hector and the Greeks and the Trojans in battle, the Battle of Troy. The Greek gods have kind of split forces. And the chaos amongst the quote-unquote gods is just as real as it is among the people. There's adultery, there's backstabbing, there's betrayal. And I remember specifically having a moment where I sat up and I thought, God isn't like this. (laughs) And then it made me ask the question, well, who is he then? (laughs) And uh, that really drove me into into study, and it, it changed my life. Actually, that moment, that evening, sitting in my little study, reading the Iliad is kind of what really sparked it for me, what really solidified, hey, if there's a God out there, I need to know who he is. And where do you see the line between understanding faith, understanding Christianity, and actually feeling that call, that tug on the heart that comes through the Spirit? Well, I would say it's one of those cliche terms, head knowledge versus heart knowledge. They say that knowledge is new awareness. So essentially, knowledge is awareness. If if I gain a new knowledge, it means I've gained a new awareness about something. Whereas wisdom is then the correct application of that new awareness or that new knowledge. And I think for many people, we can have the awakening of an awareness yet we do not respond to that awareness. And so for me, I think that is that difference. It is the, there is an intellectual awareness, you know, versus putting it into practice. For as an example, I can have a knowledge of something. I can say I have a knowledge, you know, of weather patterns and I can look at the sky or the the forecast and, and sense that tomorrow is going to be a windy, rainy day. And that's knowledge. But wisdom is going to add to that. Wisdom is going to say, okay, it's going to be a windy day tomorrow, a rainy day. So now I need to bring in the lawn furniture, (laughs) right? I need to put a tarp over the motorbike or, or whatever it is. Wisdom actually does something about it. For some people, it's the process, you know, and so knowledge naturally comes before wisdom, before the step of the action towards that knowledge. And sometimes that takes time, though hopefully for a lot of people, it's not very much. And for other people, they get stuck in the knowledge aspect, the head knowledge. To be honest, that's one of the reasons I wrote my book was to help people get out of that rut and actually say, hey, there's a design to all this. The sooner you move forward with this knowledge and do something about it, the better. And the book is very much about understanding the human condition, why we do the things that we do, what's it really all about. And I suppose this is the pursuit that you've been on for quite some time. Is that the pursuit that led you into becoming a pastor as well? 
I was a pastor before that. What led me into this book, to be honest, was I was actually preaching an Easter series in 2018, a five-week Easter series. Of course, on Easter Sunday, I often say it's the, it's the Super Bowl for Christians, right? Everybody's there. The week-by-week attenders, they're not going to miss it. We have a lot of Christmas and Easter attenders, people who don't attend church outside of Christmas and Easter, but they always show up on those dates. And then, of course, you always have the people who don't want to be there at all, but they're visiting family, and so they're essentially forced to come to church. And so I was really wondering, how can I preach a message that shows that the gospel is relevant to each one of them, regardless of where they're at? And that was really where I, had, where I started this, kind of then my years of pursuing an, the knowledge of you know philosophy and psychology and neuroscience all came together along with faith, along with the scripture. This is where my book was really birthed from, was trying to say, hey, regardless of where you're at on the faith spectrum, real close or way far away, the awareness of God is relevant to you. And so that's really what it is. And so I, I started off preaching it to a church. I've been quite amazed actually at the response that I have from people who aren't people of faith. I speak to a lot of psychologists and therapists and atheists and people of all different faith backgrounds. And uh, there's just a hunger out there for people to understand and hear about their soul. And ultimately, that, that's what the book is about. It's saying more than a brain or a body, you are a soul, and that God designed you this way for a purpose. And it's interesting that all those years back, when you started to read about faith, it was that book by C.S. Lewis, who obviously wrote for a wider audience than just those who would fill the pews on a Sunday. And here you are again, you're, you're reaching out with this book that is very Christian at heart, and yet it goes to a readership that goes far further than just the four walls of a church, doesn't it? It does. And that's something that has been a pleasant and exciting surprise. I live in Silicon Valley, which to use Christian terms, I would say is one of the most spiritually dark places on earth. There's not a whole lot of open-heartedness to the gospel here. And so because I, I minister in this environment, I've, I've learned to use language that is not in itself inflammatory, but to say, hey, let's, let's meet at a, a common point here and work forward from there. And so that fortunately bled into the book. And so a lot of people who normally wouldn't read a book of faith uh, are comfortable reading this because it approaches it from a different standpoint. The book's title is Magnetic Heart of God, Understanding the Five Cravings of Your Soul. And I know that this has been a, a lifetime's work for you of searching out the soul and knowing what really makes us tick. When you came to put it down on paper, or as you say, originally within that sermon series, what were the things that started to open up to you? What were the things that you found, aha, this is something that really needs to be in that book? It really was, for me, the response of the congregation. I was amazed at how people would come up to me and say, wow, all this finally makes sense. It was really, to be honest, their encouragement. They're like, wow, you have to do more on this. You have to talk more about this. There's something here that I've never heard before. And it just, it, it's, it's opened my eyes and opened my heart. And that's kind of what really compelled me into it. The book was a process of four years of writing and research and deleting it all because I thought it wasn't any good and starting again <laughs> and writing and research. And, and finally, I got a copy about a year and a half ago where I kind of thought I was at the point where it was done and I shared it with some people and all of them said, we love the content, but it reads like a thesis. So I went back to rewrite it because I wanted it to be an easy read, something that was accessible for everybody, rewrote it to try to use more plain language. 
It was definitely a, a long and arduous process. Looking back on it, I'm very thankful for all those early mornings and late nights and weekends where I just spent huddled over my laptop typing and thinking and just thankful that the Lord was able to produce something like this and very excited about the journey that, it, that I'm on right now. And it's interesting that you wrote it and rewrote it. Do you think that because your standard reading volume are, are these great volumes from over centuries in the past that you were trying to hold yourself to a very high standard and you just wanted to make it that good? That's exactly what it was. That's it's very perceptive of you. For those who have never read C.S. Lewis, you know, if they pick up one of Lewis's books now, it's pretty hard to read for a while until your brain adapts to the lofty language and imagery that he uses. And and so it's it's funny. So that definitely that classic literature that I had grown up and had kind of poured all over the pages of my book, making it just difficult to read for a lot of people. That's where I had to go back and say, oh, okay, let, let, me cle- let me clean this up and make it something that's more palatable. Tell me about some of the lessons in there. What are some of the lessons that people have grasped hold of, both those that were in the congregation when you were preaching through the the message series, but also those who've now had the opportunity to read the book. What is it that's really popping out to them that is grabbing them, that is making them say, hey, I never understood things like this before? The first would be the knowledge that our souls are the core of who we are. We live in a culture that, that is obsessed with the cravings of the brain and the body. It's our cultural obsession. It's it's what every politician bases their promises on. It's what every television commercial is is promoting, the cravings of the brain and the body. Meanwhile, our souls are starving to death. Our souls are the core of who we are. So I'd say that that's the first thing that people have responded to is they're like, as soon as you say it, and as soon as you begin to describe it or offer evidence to it, everyone immediately grabs on and say, I know this to be true. I am more than just this biological shape kind of lumbering through life and time. It's it's not just about nerve endings and neurons firing in my brain. There's there's something deeper to who I am. I often talk to people about this on this level, right? And just describing that the fact that we have souls is, yes, a biblical statement. It is also a scientific statement and going through the evidences of that for people. So that's first, I think, just this the awareness that people gain that they're not just a mind, they are not just a body, they are a soul, and truly their soul is the boss. And so that's the first awareness that people have been responding to. And the second awareness is that the soul is not ambiguous. It's not some mute or passive part of our being that's tethered to our flesh and only becomes activated after we die. It's the seat of our personhood now. And this is where the human behavior element really comes in. Your deepest desires, our deepest ambitions, our deepest decision-making choices are not rooted in neuroscience or psychology. They're rooted in the soul. They come from a deeper source. I uh, identify five cravings of the soul that I believe are the root of all human ambition. And you can understand your spouse. You can understand your neighbor. You can understand your favorite politician or your most reviled politician or understand yourself for that matter by simply looking at it through the lens of these five cravings. It simplifies, if I could use that term, human understanding where I can finally look at someone and say, I don't pretend to know everything, but I know that this behavior or this reaction is rooted in one of these five cravings. That allows me to love them. That allows me to adapt. That allows me to truly draw near to them and be a support to them in a way that is actually helpful. I imagine that there's 
a great sense of relief for many people in that finally it clicks what they've already known more or less internally, that they don't have to keep trying to satisfy the desires of the mind, the desires of the body, and ignore this thing called the soul. And there must be a moment for many people when there's this, ah, finally, I can start to be what I was created to be. Yeah. We live in an age of unprecedented prosperity. And when I say unprecedented prosperity, I mean in the history of the world. I mean, there's never been a generation like the generations alive today who have had such unfettered access to to freedom, to leisure, to wealth opportunities, to comfort, to entertainment, to world travel. And yet virtually every study shows that mankind in general is more unhappy than ever. And I think a large part of the reason for this is because we have been searching for peace and happiness in the biological. We've been searching for it simply in these tangible things around us. And we weren't designed to find peace and happiness in those places. That's why the book is called The Magnetic Heart of God, Understanding the Five Cravings of Your Soul. I believe that God placed these cravings inside of us for the purpose of ultimately drawing us back to himself because we can't find satisfaction for them in worldly things. We can find satisfaction temporarily. And of course, we in the world can say we've, we've gone through seasons, at least hopefully most people have experienced seasons of joy and happiness and peace, but there's always an agitation of some sort. It's never quite enough. And so for people, what I think has been enlightening to them is to say, is, is to finally understand what they're looking for. People are, are scouring the globe, but they don't actually quite know what they're looking for. And so what the book does is it helps identify, this is what you're looking for. And now that you know what you're looking for, you have a chance of finding it. And there would be many people who, as I say, would have that great sense of relief. It's like, I've known for so long that there's something missing and you've put your finger on it and this is starting to make sense. Does the book then tell you how to go from that knowing of that to understanding how do we fulfill the desires that are truly there in our heart, how we can be reconciled back to the magnetic heart of God? Absolutely. The second chapter in the book revolves around understanding why. It's called the deep why. Um, And then one of the latter chapters of the book is called the deep how. (laughs) You know, so we spend a lot of time exploring why things are the way they are, why people are reacting the way they are. And then as we as the book comes to a draws to an end, yeah, I felt it was very important, obviously, not just to leave people hanging, but then to introduce that, okay, now how do we address this? I definitely wanted to move towards resolution. What has been amazing to me is how people of all different backgrounds actually there's a missionary group right now who has suggested they'd like to use this for missionary purposes because they feel it really explains why people of faith believe the things that they believe. And again, these are all things I did not expect when I was writing the book. The book is called The Magnetic Heart of God. I said, understanding the five cravings of your soul, because I believe, I said, that God placed these cravings inside of us like a homing device, almost like a magnet in order to draw us back to himself. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, these are cravings of the soul which means they're non-biological cravings. And non-biological cravings cannot be satisfied in biological things. How often do you think that we of faith, those people of us who are part of a church, have been duped into chasing after the same things the world is chasing after? Even though we know there's a soul, even though we know that there is a God 
who seeks to draw close to us, how often are we still duped into chasing after the things the world tells us we should chase? I think it's constant, and I think it's perceptive of you to pick up on. It is one of our primary hindrances in the church, and that, forgive me for using this language, but I think it's the most descriptive. I think I think a lot of us have come to view God as a sugar daddy, in that we, we've come to faith, and rather than realizing that our hope is in a completely different place than it used to be, what we've done is we come to God and we say, now, God, now that I, quote unquote, believe in you, I need you to help me satisfy my biological cravings in the same way that all the non-believers are looking for it. So at the end of the day, the Christian is looking for hope in a new house and a new career and good health, just like everybody else. And I believe when you actually read the scriptures, when you get right down into it, there's something different that is promised to us in the scriptures. There is a joy that surpasses understanding. There's a peace that surpasses understanding. We are meant to experience fulfillment in life, even in the absence of all the opportunities and the blessings that the world is pursuing it in. But oftentimes in the church, we're looking for it in the same places. Only now we're looking to God to help us gain it in these same fallible places. And it's resulted, I honestly, in a lot of disillusionment in the church. In fact, I would say it's one of the biggest reasons why a lot of churches are shrinking because people came to faith or they came to the church mostly with the idea that God was going to help them, you know, satisfy their personal biological dreams. And they haven't been able to grasp that God is saying, oh, no, I have so much more for you. I have something so much better for you. But they came here looking for satisfaction of biological things and they didn't find it. Not that God doesn't. Obviously, I believe that God absolutely does supply those needs out of his goodness for us oftentimes. But his plan is so much more. It's so much better. It's so much bigger. And a big part of it is that understanding that what God wants for us is way more satisfying. And once we get hold of that, I guess we're more likely to start to pursue it in the way that you're suggesting. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, why people have been connecting with the book the way they have is because the book really identifies what it is we're looking for. It names what has been left unnamed for a long time, even the soul. As a person of faith, as a pastor and a lifelong you know, attender of church, I can say that the, we, we talk about the soul all the time. We, we sing about the soul all the time. And yet it's really been left as in something that's ambiguous to a certain degree, almost like Star Wars, where they talk about the force, right? It's <laughs> We know there's something about it and we know that there's something powerful about it, but that's it. It's left a mystery. And I think that the book really um, unlocks the mystery and is able to bring definition to things, which again, it allows us to comprehend them and pursue them with much more success. Corey, if people are wanting to get a hold of that book, Magnetic Heart of God, or if they're wanting to get in touch with you, where's the easiest place for them to find you? The easiest place to find me is coreyrosenke.com, my website, which can direct people to the book or allows people to contact me directly or learn more about me. Or, of course, um, for those who are interested in the book, if you just type The Magnetic Heart of God or Understanding the Five Cravings of Your Soul into whatever browser you use, the book should pop up uh, available in a bookstore near you. And I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. So if you missed those references, just head to that website and you'll be able to find all the details. Corey, thank you so much for writing the book and telling your story. And thank you for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.